Kia ora and hello everyone. On behalf of Atlantic Institute and the Atlantic Fellows community, it's my huge pleasure and honour to welcome you to today's webinar titled, as you know, Narrative Shift in the Digital Age, Media, Politics and Citizenship. I would especially like to acknowledge our Rhodes Trust staff, scholars and residents and alumni who have joined today. Welcome. We also have a small number of fellows from the Roddenberry and Obama Fellows Program. Welcome. Finally, to our Atlantic Fellows staff and fellows, a really warm welcome. To our guest speaker today, Robert Reich, thank you for honouring this community today and for agreeing to share your thoughts and wisdom with us. We also acknowledge your organisation, Inequality Media, and the partnership with Atlantic Philanthropies and Fellows. We are so looking forward to the session today. Narrative shift in the digital age is about all of us finding the bigger we and a deeper consideration of what is possible. Digital advancements and emerging technologies shift the storytelling away from who is at the front of the room to the audience or participants. And so a really, really warm welcome to everyone. Welcome once, welcome twice, welcome three times. And delighted now to hand over to Tanya, who is moderating our session today. Thank you so much, Evie. Greetings from a finally warm and sunny Oxford. It's really my pleasure to be part of the dialogue today that we're going to have on this really timely topic. For those who don't know, I'm Tanya Charles. I'm a program and impact lead at the Atlantic Institute. I'm sure you'd agree that at this particular moment in our historical trajectory, this digital age, as we've called it, has lifted new ways to shape narrative, but also unique challenges. And we are so honored that Professor Robert will illuminate on the links between media, politics, and citizenship. Now to the star of the show, as it were. Secretary Reich has extensive professional experience in so many fields. He's Chancellor's Professor of Public Policy at the University of California at Berkeley, has served as Secretary of Labor in the Clinton administration, for which he, of course, got named by Time magazine one of the 10 most effective cabinet ministers. He's been an advisor to President Barack Obama. He's worked for President Carter and Ford. And of course, has written 16 books, including bestsellers, Aftershock, The Work of Nations, Beyond Outrage, and his most recent being The Common Good. Robert is also the co-creator of two full-length documentaries, Inequality for All, which is very relevant, of course, to this community, who's really looking at inequality, and also won the Special Feature Award at the Sundance Film Festival, as well as being Emmy-nominated. There's also Saving Capitalism, and both of those films are available online. Of course, he is the co-founder of Inequality Media, which is a nonprofit that educates and engages the public about inequality and the imbalance of power through digital media. Professor Reich, we are truly honored that you have taken the time to dialogue with us, and we thank all of you and your team at Inequality Media for making this possible as well, that we can be in this space together and really talk about such relevant and pertinent issues today. So the spotlight is now on you, Robert. Over to you. Well, thank you very much, and a great thank you to the Atlantic Fellows, all of you who are as concerned, if not more concerned as I am, with the issues of widening inequality and social injustice in America, in Europe, around the world, and it really is a world phenomenon. What I'd like to do today is talk about how we understand the complexities 
of the political economy, not just our own nation's political economy, but also the world political economy, because we are all in a very complicated, elaborate system, and we understand that system best through narratives, through stories. This is not new for thousands of years. People understand their world through stories. But the question is how those stories change and what the contested stories actually are. Do our new digital media contribute to opening the way to different kinds of stories that explain our political economy and explain many of the tensions and stresses we all find? And are those new stories compatible with social justice as we understand that term? What I thought I'd do is talk first about the two dominant stories in the West right now about political economy. And I would suggest that neither of them is really adequate. In fact, both of them in very important ways fail to explain what's happening and are in some profound manner misleading. I then want to suggest a story, a narrative that is much closer to the truth, more powerful. I want to talk about the history of this third narrative and why it has become as truthful and as important as it has been, and what the future of this third narrative may be. First of all, the dominant narrative through most of the, let's say, beginning in the 70s, 80s, certainly continuing through the 1980s and 90s, and over the last 20 years, has been, for want of a better term, neoliberal. What I mean by that is that the narrative has basically said and instructed that the way we gain ground, the way people gain a share of prosperity, the way our societies and our cultures do better is through economic growth and through efficiency. And that economic growth and efficiency is best achieved, according to this narrative, through privatization, through globalization, that is free trade and free movement of capital, through a kind of free market and I'll explain what I mean by free market in a moment, but by basically getting rid of all of the so-called impediments to the movement of services and goods and resources to their so-called highest and best uses. This is an economic paradigm, but it has also become a cultural paradigm. It has become the way in which most of us certainly in the United States, and to a greater extent than ever in Europe, understand what we ought to be doing to achieve a better society. And again, I want to stress that these narratives are about what is a good society. They teach us implicitly or explicitly what we ought to be doing to achieve a good society. The problem with the neoliberal paradigm is that it doesn't work. It has been shown certainly over the last 30 to 40 years to lead directly or indirectly to stagnant wages for male workers, particularly in the United States, but increasingly in other places. Not only are wages stagnating, but they're actually declining, adjusted for inflation. 
Part of the neoliberal paradigm also is anti-union. It very rarely says it is anti-union, but the logic of it is that any impediments to the free movement of goods and services to higher and best uses is a problem that ought to be removed. And of course, unions fit into that definition of a problem. The neoliberal paradigm is not only shown to be false in the sense that it has not led to widespread prosperity. It's led instead to stagnant and declining wages. But it is also shown to be unfair because along with those stagnant and declining wages for most people has come widening inequality. The United States economy today is more than twice the size that it was 25, 30 years ago. And yet most of the gains have gone to the top 10%. Of those gains, a majority of those gains have gone to the top 1%. We find ourselves in a society that is as unequal as it was the last time it was extremely unequal, which was between 1880 and 1920. Not only do we find huge levels of inequality flowing and stemming from that neoliberal paradigm, we also find a great deal of what might be termed and seen as corruption in the sense that a lot of the wealth is turned into money that is used to support campaigns, donations to essentially bribe politicians. This is especially true in the United States, but we see the same pattern in terms of money infecting politics in many of our so-called democracies, undermining very much what it means to have a democracy, because money, no matter what the Supreme Court of the United States says, is not speech. In fact, excessive money in politics drowns out speech of many people. So what's the alternative paradigm? Well, in recent years, a second paradigm using digital technologies to a large extent has been eroding the neoliberal paradigm. But I want to very quickly hasten to say that the second paradigm is faulty to a very great extent. In fact, arguably has many more problems associated with it than the neoliberal narrative. Perhaps the best way of describing this second paradigm is to give you a little bit of personal history. When I was Secretary of Labor for Bill Clinton and began to see widening inequality in the United States, began to see the discontent that many people began to feel working harder and harder and not getting anywhere, defying their expectations that hard work would allow them to follow the same trajectory that their parents or their grandparents followed between 1945, 46, the end of the Second World War, and the late 1970s. As people began to get angrier as I saw that, I began to also see something else, another response to that anger. It began with Ross Perot in the early 1990s, and then Pat Buchanan, a presidential candidate in 1996, briefly. It reached its zenith after the 2008 financial crisis. Up until that time, many in the United States and some in Europe who were working harder than ever and not getting ahead following in their minds the story that they had, the dominant story was, again, the neoliberal paradigm. How could it be that we're working harder and harder and we're not getting ahead? They began to listen to a different story, which was a story of anger. And it was a story of anger against a system that seemed to be unfair. But its proponents began to blame 
immigrants, began to blame Muslims, began to blame black people, began to blame people who were minorities, were being scapegoated essentially for this phenomenon. Let me give you an example. In 2015, a full year before the 2016 elections in the United States, I did some focus groups in Michigan, North Carolina, Wisconsin, Georgia, a lot of states that are dubbed swing states because they're politically volatile. At that time, I was interested in understanding who people were going to vote for and what their understandings of politics were at that time. The two dominant candidates from the Republicans and Democrats in 2015 were among Democrats, it was Hillary Clinton, and among Republicans, it was Jeb Bush. And yet what I heard from these focus groups again and again, and I was surprised, quite frankly, even the same people would utter two different names, not Jeb Bush and Hillary Clinton. The names would be Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump. When I first heard people talk about Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump as presidential candidates that they found admirable, that they found persuasive, I was incredulous because not only did these two gentlemen have nothing to do with establishment politics, Donald Trump wasn't even a Republican at the time, Bernie Sanders was barely a Democrat, but they also were antipified the anger and exemplified the anger that was boiling to the surface. Donald Trump used that anger to stake a claim to a different narrative. Essentially, the Donald Trump narrative, the Trumpist narrative that is still with us in the United States, and you see it in Europe in terms of the extreme right, Le Pen. Le Pen gets 40% of the vote in France. That is extraordinary. Using a narrative that, let's call it white Christian nationalism. It's a narrative that celebrates nationalism as opposed to globalization very different from the neoliberal paradigm, but also has in it a great deal of blame toward people who are different, people who are not white, people who are immigrants, people who have different races and nationalities. The underlying reality, and there is a pundit in the United States named Tucker Carlson on Fox News, but you hear this in various places. The underlying narrative is that all of these others, in terms of immigrants, Muslims, ethnic, religious groups that are different from white Christian nationalists, they are undermining the nation. They're undermining the white dominance. They're undermining the power of the group that had been dominant. What this narrative does is it provides an answer, a false answer, but an answer to the question that began to be raised in the 1980s and 90s by many, many people who were losing ground. And that question is, why am I working harder and harder and losing ground? What can possibly explain this phenomenon? What narratives do, what stories do, is they explain. Now, Bernie Sanders, interestingly, provided a very different narrative, which I'll call the third narrative, which has not become a dominant narrative at all in the United States or in Europe. But Bernie Sanders' narrative was the reason you are falling behind. The reason you're working harder than ever, the reason that your expectations of doing better and better are not being fulfilled is because very powerful and wealthy forces in the society, in the world, are siphoning off your gains for their own purposes. At the heart of this narrative, and I'm not going to blame or credit Bernie Sanders with this, 
is the notion that there is no free market. This is very, very radically different from the neoliberal paradigm. This third paradigm would say, not only is there no free market, but the market is a construct. It is a human institution. The market depends on human decisions as to what degree of concentration constitutes a monopoly and to what extent workers can join together to form unions or really what is property. In a digital age, it's not clear what property actually is. How do you define intellectual property? And what kind of contracts really are permissible? And with regard to issues such as bankruptcy, who can declare bankruptcy and for what purposes? Again, the market has to answer these kinds of questions. And the people who make the decisions about how these markets are going to be structured, or all markets are structured, are individuals, are people, are politicians, many of them lawmakers, legislators. Some of them are court justices or judges in various courts. Some of them are administrative agency personnel, but all of them are working on the basis of some notion of the common good. What Bernie Sanders' paradigm, and I'm going to use Bernie Sanders as a kind of shorthand, what he would say, or his paradigm would say, is these people are politically motivated. That is, they have ideas about what the common good is, but their notions of the common good are sometimes very different from other people's. And indeed, if there is too much concentration of wealth and income at the very top of society, what happens inevitably is that some of that wealth and income corrupts the people, bribes the people, undermines the integrity of the people who are making these decisions about the structure of the market. And so in terms of the pre-distribution of income and wealth, that occurs automatically in terms of market transactions. These wealthy individuals are becoming even wealthier due to a what might be understood as a downward spiral, a vicious spiral in which they get wealthier, their wealth enables them to bribe or corrupt the people who are designing the market. They not only get a market that generates more wealth for them, they undermine unions, they allow a greater degree of economic concentration in terms of dominant industries, dominant firms. They prohibit certain groups from declaring bankruptcy, such as homeowners or students who are laden with debt. In terms of intellectual property, they make it possible for those owners of intellectual property to hold on to that intellectual property right much longer than otherwise. Pharmaceuticals would be a good example in the United States because it's now fairly easy for a pharmaceutical company to make very small changes in the intellectual property underlying a new drug and keep that drug from becoming generic for many, many years. All of these ways in which people with great wealth and corporations that are behind them change the market undermines not only the possibility of working people getting ahead but also makes it difficult for the economy and society to maintain its integrity. Everything looks like it's corrupt or it looks like the game is rigged. Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump going into 2016, both of them talked about a rigged economy. After the 2008 financial crisis, people were very receptive to the argument that the economy was rigged. 
So what we had beginning in 2016 in the United States, and I think it's growing even now, is basically a different kind of competition of narratives, a kind of post-digital competition of narratives, one being the white Christian nationalist narrative, that the reason you are not doing well is because of all of them who are not white and Christian and not of our nation. And then you have a second competing new narrative, which is that there is corruption, the game is rigged, because power and wealth have concentrated at the very top. And the only way forward is through a multi-ethnic, multi-racial union of poor people, working class people, middle class people who join together politically to reclaim their political rights, their voice, their same degree of prosperity, the same control they had over the market that they did between 1946 and 1980, and that it is through this kind of politics that we begin to reassert and begin to reachieve or get back on the road to some sort of social justice. Finally, let me just say that the big question in the United States, and I think it's also becoming a larger and larger question in Europe and elsewhere, is whether the white Christian nationalist narrative, which is fundamentally false, factually false, it's a narrative that really appeals in many ways to the worst instincts of people, whether that narrative can utilize social media, digital technology to weaponize so much of the information people are getting that they simply are persuaded of the truth of this narrative. When I say the West, I say Europe and the West, I shouldn't limit it because Vladimir Putin is using almost exactly the same narrative and using digital technologies in Russia to convince Russians that their own version of white Christian nationalism is the truth, that their enemies are not only the West, but also an extension of that putative West, which is Ukraine. The question I leave you with is how can a much more truthful narrative, which is, I'm going to say for simplicity's sake, the Bernie Sanders narrative, how can that narrative win out in a digital age over the white Christian nationalist narrative? What's the methodology? What's the means by doing so? This contest of narratives that I'm suggesting to you presupposes that the neoliberal narrative is over and done with. And I think that's true. I think that we're looking through a rearview mirror when we talk about the neoliberal narrative. The real contest ahead is either this digital weaponized white Christian nationalist narrative or a narrative that takes on this concentrated wealth and income and political power directly and rejuvenates a kind of social justice movement. Thank you. Thank you so much, Robert, for that very illuminating reflection. And what was interesting for me is how you charted to what's happened in our recent past. Could you just lift the lid a little bit on when you say digital technologies, what you mean? Because I don't think we are necessarily all on the same page. There are two dimensions that I mentioned. One has to do with social media. That yeah. is the weaponization of information on social media. We, on the one hand, look at it as a wonderful process of democratizing information. But in point of fact, 
it has proven to be a double-edged sword. It allows a great deal of misinformation and purposeful misinformation to dominate. And that's exactly what is happening right now. That's what the dispute over the 2020 election, Donald Trump's refusal to concede, Vladimir Putin and what he did beginning in the United States in 2016. There's a lot of evidence of that, but also what he's doing right now and so forth. The other way in which I referred to digital technologies was in terms of how markets are created. That is the most important property right right now is intangible. It is intellectual property. And you combine that with the flows of information and you can see how relatively easy it is to, and I'm going to use the quote, rig, quote unquote, the market, but change the rules of the market to benefit particular groups. Very, very insightful. Yeah, the tension between everyone having access to a public domain, as it were, through social media, but then how do you protect your intellectual property? And then more essentially, as you illuminated, where is the truth in that? Where is the truth in the midst of that? And you gave the powerful example of how Putin is manipulating truth-telling. Professor Reich, thank you so, so much for giving us your time. Thank you so much for the generosity of sharing decades of knowledge and experience so beautifully and so accessibly with us all. Thank you all. And I really appreciate the time and I appreciate very much what you're all doing.